This episode is brought to you by the 10th Annual Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival. The Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival brings together filmmakers from around the globe to share the impactful and harrowing corruption cases that span industries and governments alike. Led by whistleblower, documentarian, author, and... Make It Podcast guest Michael McRae, the Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival screens the work of these brave filmmakers and helps them navigate the often lonely and dangerous world of the whistleblower. And this year will be no different. With more films, forums, breakouts, and panels than ever, this year's summit is poised to be the best of them all. And beginning July 22nd and running through... July 31st, registration and tickets to this year's festival can be purchased at www.whistleblowersummit.com. That's W-H-I-S-T-L-E-B-L-O-W-E-R-S-U-M-M-I-T.com. So whistleblowersummit.com and registration is entirely free. So I'll say that again. Registration is completely free. With all the screenings and panels being virtual, the barriers to getting involved are all but removed. So again, go to www.whistleblowersummit.com to register for free and you won't regret it. Again, www.whistleblowersummit.com and join us at the Make It Podcast and Bonsai Creative in attending what is rapidly becoming the most important festival in the United States for the cause of liberty. That's www.whistleblowersummit.com to register free today. This episode is also brought to you by Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like you worldwide. And the best part is that it's completely free. So join today at www.bonsai.film. That's B-O-N-S-A-I.film, F-I-L-M. So www.bonsai.film. It takes just a few seconds. And once you sign up, you'll get the very next newsletter on Friday morning. It's that simple. Go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights, our bi-weekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives like yourself. And don't worry, we'll never sell your information or spam you with a bunch of nonsense emails. Just the bi-weekly film industry goodness that you need. And if you ever tire of Indie Insights, simply unsubscribe. No gimmicks, no games. So go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights for free. Hello, hello, Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast and a quick note before we get started. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded on May 1st, 2022. So this would be before the January 6th hearings began. Uh, It would be just as Elon Musk announced his plans to acquire Twitter and certainly before the Uvalde and Highland Park shootings uh, before those 
tragedies occurred. And as you listen, you'll realize why I needed to make these notes. So without further ado, enjoy this conversation with whistleblower, documentarian, and author Michael McRae. Listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Michael McRae. I am a documentary filmmaker and I am a film festival organizer. You may know me, you probably know me, well, either from um, television. I was the spokesperson for the Acorn 8, which was a uh, watchdog group that blew the whistle on the Acorn. Um, that was a very hot topic back in 2008. Or you may know me from the um, Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival, which is the largest gathering of whistleblowers and advocates in the country. Uh, currently, I'm working on my feature-length documentary about whistleblowing, and I'm here to share information about it. Michael McRae, welcome back to the Make It Podcast. Thank you, Chris. Anytime. So excited and proud to have you back on the podcast, our first conversation created a whirlwind of opinions and feedback we got. Um, there's like a current Twitter thread that is nonstop, uh, based on our last interview. It's, it, it continues to grow. Like it's like, it's got like 30 people copied on it now. So it's, it's, it's a machine unto itself, just snowballing. And for good reason, uh, like you mentioned in our first conversation, you are the real deal. You're, you're not playing a whistleblower on TV. You are uh, the person that's dedicated his life, one of the people that have dedicated their life to the necessity and the the, the necessary action behavior life of, of whistleblowing. You talked about uh, the Whistleblower Summit. And I would love to start there and just, uh, I know it's coming up, you know, this year as usual, what, um, what is the format this year? Is it, is it all on site? Is it online? Is it, is it hybrid? How is this year's festival going to be organized? Well, Chris, thank you for asking. I, I love talking about this. The uh, dates for this year's summit are July 22nd through 31st. Um, and again, as always, we anchor it on the week of July 30th, which is National Whistleblower Appreciation Day. Most people don't know there's such a thing, but there is. Um, this year, I'm especially ecstatic about the collaboration with Bonsai Creative. I think what we're going to do, what we're going to be able to add to the summit this year is something really, really powerful. Um, one of the things that we saw as the... Um, a commonality between filmmakers, um, screenwriters, and then also whistleblowers is the, the need to pitch, the need to be able to effectively pitch their stories. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to work with you guys and also um, the Northeastern, Northeastern Film Lab and have creative workshops so that filmmakers and um, filmmakers, writers and whistleblowers can get together and learn to hone their pitch. So, Chris, I know you're in the um, I know the business that you're in and you hear a lot of pitches and sometimes they're not that good. <laughs> and it's um no it's no um no slight and especially talking about whistleblowers and the reason that i say that is a lot of times for whistleblowers they're they're experiencing ptsd mm-hmm. and they're, they're they're almost kind of shouting trying to get somebody to listen to them and it's not always effective so i because i really man i i lean into this stuff so i know the whole journey i know what they're going through and i'll give them as much time as i can but professionals reporters, journalists, you know, there are other people that, that they're, they're not going to take the time to go through your suitcase full of documents. Mm-hmm. And so what we want to do is try to be able to, to get, give people just enough information to get the story out and to get them hooked and then allow the, um, the person to request more information. And we just think that that is the one common line between all three of those audiences where we can add value. So there's going to be this basically a creative workshop for the three days. Um, I think that's uh, July 20, I think it's the 27th through the 29th. Uh, it'll be on the website is the kind of creative lab. We're going to start the first two days of the summit proper. We're, those days will be virtual, virtual workshop workshops with mm-hmm. policymakers. But this year we want to have, it's the 10th anniversary. And so we're going to be hybrid in the sense that we're going to be back on the Hill um, on Friday, July 29th, and then at Busboys and Ports on Saturday, July 30th on National Whistleblower Day. And so what we're planning on doing there is we'll have um, our closing plenary is going to be uh, on the, hopefully on the Senate side, we're still kind of locking in the rooms. Um, but our capstone event this year is going to be the Whistleblowers and Correspondent Sol- Solidarity Dinner. And so I know you just, uh, and I know you're up on the news, Chris, so you just watched the, the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And one, one of the things that always gets us is you have this dinner with policymakers, with journalists, with publishers, with media figures, with celebrities. And when we look at it, you know, the people who aren't there, the sources, Hmm. The whistleblowers, the people who actually that are the engine for all the stories that these um, media companies that, that, that when they proliferate the coverage or even some of the policy agenda, you know, they all they forget, you know, everybody's there but us. So <laughs> this year we're going to have our own. So we're going to uh, I'm sure it's not going to be as large, but this year for the first time, we're going to collaborate with the other um, journalism organizations, whistleblowers, and we're going to have the first ever whistleblowers and correspondent solidarity dinner. Why aren't the sources there? Um, it's because we're the cog in the machine. Okay. We're the cog in the machine. And so in one sense for us, from our perspective, you know, if you blow the whistle and sometimes like me, I'm, I'm a blend for punish for punishment. I've done it a couple of times, yeah. but generally speaking, you have one story, you have one, whatever you blow, you blow the whistle on that winds up being your life. Okay. For a journalist, you know, I need my, my sources can't be interchangeable. As a matter of fact, there was one story that when the, um, if you may remember when the VA whistleblower case first broke, mm-hmm. 
there was a guy, the guy that actually broke the stories, his, his name was Oliver Mitchell. And I'm not sure if he was special ops. He was a Marine. He was, he was really, you know, a vet for real. And we never understood what is in his background, but they would tee him up for interviews and then pull him at the last minute. But what one organization did was take his evidence, run with the story, and substituted another veteran film. Interesting. So, you know, again, so for for so for the for the media organizations, they got the story out. For Mitchell, they took all his evidence and then and then squashed his story, his involvement. So it, it's those types of things that we that we um that we fight that we're we're trying to draw attention to. I don't necessarily Do you think, think I don't he wanna... wanted anonymity. Oh no, no, he he didn't. Later on, he got to the point where he no longer wanted us to talk about it. But okay. um, he was a, a lot of a lot of what drives a lot of whistleblowers is they, they're, they're trying they're actually trying to tell the story. But, but again, but there are some whistleblowers who choose to to um, they try to remain anonymous. But in the world that we live in, is in my opinion, it's almost impossible. At some point in time, the world might not know who you are, but your employer knows who you are. Yes. Yeah. And they just kind of follow the tea leaves. Yeah. So, so, so we're happy about that. And then also we're going to do a, um, add a comedy showcase, uh, oh. really a tribute to, um, to Dick Gregory, something that we're working on. So uh, we're going to yep. do that on the, um, on the 30th. And we just want to kind of talk about satire as a tool for advocacy. So, so we're really excited to be, to be able to get together and actually press the flesh um, break bread, share libations with each other. So we're, we're happy. It's been, um, two years, totally virtual has been kind of tough. Yeah. I can't wait. It's going to be super exciting and you couldn't have a better representation for satire as advocacy than Dick Gregory. So, um, that's going to be a huge success. I want to go back to something that you said, uh, there's so much to dig into, by the way, and thank you for, for that background. Uh, you talked about pitching and, and that, you know, it's no slight to any filmmaker. And, and I completely agree with you. I think there's a sense out there that, okay, if you're bad at pitching, you should have some shame or embarrassment. Absolutely not. Um, especially if you're a whistleblower, it, w- it would be akin to uh, going up to a, a punter that's on a football team and asking him what the quarterback was thinking on that interception. Like, mm-hmm. like there's totally different jobs. So just because you're, you're on the a football team doesn't mean right. that you're going to be, uh, have full understanding in depth of somebody else's role or position. So same thing here, you're making a movie, we're all filmmakers, but it doesn't mean you know how to pitch right away. And so that's the whole point. The point isn't to, you know, separate the good from the bad or whatever. It's really just to improve those skills so that your story can get told. Right. You know, more readily, uh, right. you know, easier. Well, um, and also that you don't waste the opportunity. Yeah. You know, that, that, to me, that's the biggest thing is like, wow, I mean, you had 60 minutes and then you went too far. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of times I, I think if, if someone asked me and, and turned the tables on me and, and made me uh, answer a question they were asking me <laughs> for once, um, I would pro- and, and, and ask me about pitching, which is kind of what happens when we go to festivals anyway. Mm-hmm. we end up having to, you know, we're, we're really answering questions, but if someone were to ask me, boil, boil down 
what makes a pitch good in one sentence, I would probably just simply say, don't, don't pitch anything that scares people. If you, that's the whole thing. If you scare the money, the money will go. And all the money wants is to have a safe place to land. And the more risky your pitch is, the more scared the money gets. Oh, you, this song is really important to the movie and you're not sure you have the rights. Oh, uh, well come back to me when you have the rights, uh, you know, right. Oh, you have a, a musical, uh, that you want to make because musicals are hot right now. Um, but you have no ca- cast attachments. Are you, are you attached to cast and, and, and there's no one knows who they are or your budgets through the roof on some project. And the people in the room know you could make the same movie for one 40th of the price, for example. So there are all mm-hmm. these little things that we'll talk about. Um, we, we always talk about these things, but we'll talk about at the, at the whistleblower summit. I am curious, this is your 10th year. How often are documentary films an element of, or, or play a role in the uncovering of an impropriety? Um, Trevor Noah made a joke that I think is only funny because it's true. (laughs) And he says that now, if you want to change the world, all you have to do is make a documentary. Yeah. And that's, it's, it, and that, that's kind of been where, where we are, because even as a, um, as a whistleblower, you know, the system has a way of, of, of covering up a lot of stories mm-hmm. and a lot of cases. And ultimately, kind of the model that we use is essentially when you're blowing the whistle, the only way that you turn, turn the tables is that you get society involved. And then the question becomes, how do you even notify society? And so that might be that 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 episode that um, interview on sixty minutes. Um, it might be that article that comes out in the Washington Post. Um, but I'm advocating that it may just be that 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 feature length doc, or maybe not even a feature. But um, it's a tool to be able to talk to the general public and point them in the right direction. Because then, once that goes, if you're successful. Um, you'll get some other coverage and some pickup about it. And people will start now to like, Hmm, you know, Chris, tell me some more about this. So that something seems wrong here. Yeah. And that's how you essentially alert the public. And that's that, you know, the, um, in court, they say, you don't want to try you know, the judges hate it. When you try the, try the case in the media, well, sometimes mm-hmm. that's sometimes the only way to win is to go to the court of public opinion. Yeah, I'm reminded of the lady who blew the whistle on the Facebook algorithm mm-hmm. and, you know, don't know that her outcome. I think maybe she got paid. Uh, Facebook's going to move forward, but their their brand and reputation has been besmirched in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And the most important thing is, is that now there are all these reports in white papers being written up on the effects of right their algorithm on mm-hmm. elections, child, childhood mm-hmm. suicide, uh, childhood well, Chris, depression, the, thing is the, the whole, um, the whole concept of disruptors that these people, these tech companies came in and disrupt, disrupted whole industries. 
Well, then when you turn around and you apply it to, you can feel one way or another about that, whether you're kind of pro-capitalism or, or not. But when you apply the same concept of disruption to our electoral system, to our government, okay, there's a problem. There, there, there has to be some limits to this stuff. And um, that's kind of, when, I, when I'm watching this, I'm just kind of, you know, the AI, the bots, the algorithms, and all this kind of stuff. Because I, I, um, I think we talked about it last time, the movie The Great Hack, mm-hmm. that um, actually, it didn't premiere, but it screened, we screened it um, at the Whistleblower Summer. I think that was 20, either 18 or 2019, right before COVID. Mm-hmm. And we had the um, Brittany Kaiser, the, uh, the Cambridge Analytical Whistleblower. So we had a Q&A session with it. And it was, yep. the whole thing is like mind boggling as to what, what that case really was about. Now it's, it's, um, it's on Netflix. And I think anybody who's really interested should, um, should check it out, but it Absolutely. gets into that. How, how do you hack someone's mind? Yeah. It, it's fascinating. And the thing that people might be sort of most concerned or afraid of, I think they would be surprised to know that that, already is here right it's just that um it's not scale it's not at scale like is it uh you know a, a lot of well yeah that's a good point but it's but it's I, I guess what i mean by that is is um people think there's even distribution of goods and services and there never has been ever uh, so, so what somebody might be enjoying right now that you wouldn't know about because they have, you know, capital will eventually get to you. But it, you know, let's say the military, for example, is a great example. Like, you know, they had computers in the sixties, uh, by the time we could have them in our homes, it was the mid eighties, early eighties. So that's the kind of gap we're talking about. We're talking about a, a two decade sort of run, on the technology before we even get a sense of it commercially, I, I guess is, is what I mean. Well, you also, you also have exponential growth too there. The, the, yeah. the time is truncated tremendously. And then yeah. also the, you know, More the that, yeah, the fact that you used to have to have a whole room full of computers to have, and the stuff that you have in your pocket now is, is much more powerful. So, yeah, it's 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 exactly right, and the phone is definitely uh, a little spy in your pocket. <laughs> no, no, it absolutely is. It, yeah. it absolutely is. Yeah, at all times. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. So on that on that same, you know, uh, keeping that that same energy, as the kids say, uh, <laughs> if you had to give this audience one one whistleblower film as the most impactful, what, what would it be? Ooh. The most impactful. I, I, again, the fact that I just said the great hack, mm-hmm. I'm great. Tending, yeah. I'm, I'm tending to stick with it. And, and the reason is, is that I don't think that we necessarily understand that we had state sponsored level psychological operations being played on us within the United States. Mm-hmm. I, I, when I, when I talk to people and they try to tell me that they saw the social network, I'm like, no dude, <laughs> the great hack. Yeah. You're close. It's related. It's Ken, but no, the great hack. 
And um, and it's, it's it's fascinating to me because there are a lot of um, a lot of my progressive friends tend not to um, they don't gravitate towards it. I'm like, you guys, you guys, you really have to understand this movie to understand what's going on now. They 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 literally have mapped people's psyche across the nation because of um, permissions that you gave in Facebook, they didn't, they're not only hacking your information, they're hacking all your friends. So those 5,000 friends that you have, they got their stuff. Their 5,000 friends, they got their stuff. And all of these little games and, and surveys and, you know, the little cute stuff that we play, they built individualized profiles of your psyche so that they can target my, it, it's, it's, it's one step down from the minority report when the ad says, hello, Chris, how would you like some tea today? Yeah, yeah. And that's what's being served on the phones, on the little spy in your pocket. Yeah, yeah, com- completely agree. It's, 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 it's remarkable. Um, it's remarkable when you th- think about the idea that Facebook and Google might know you better or likely do know you better than your significant other, right. your parents. I think, I think there's something they say if they get 30 points, of, 30 points of data, there's, there's some number yeah. that, you know, with 30 data points, they know you better than, than the closest people in your life. Yeah. And, it, and it's an extension of, I guess, MK ultra, which, uh, wow. there you know, you once, <laughs> yeah, there, well, you, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Once somebody can figure that out, you, you think they just stopped? Right. They just like, oh, that was a fun yeah. experiment. We we'll take all that information and throw it in the dumpster. Right. Right. Yeah. No, they, yeah they, 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 they were supposed- upon it and progressed upon it. Right. Well, and, and they're so, still running around. They say that they were supposed to have deleted the data set. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. No way. And and or they deleted a data set, but that doesn't mean there. You know, there wasn't copies or whatever. And I, I mean, I look at stories like the Fort Lauderdale airport shooting from a few years ago where apparently the shooter traveled from Alaska to Fort Lauderdale with no known, with no known motive Mm -hmm. shot five to eight people, I believe, and then was arrested without incident and didn't know, didn't understand what he was doing. Wow. I didn't, I missed that one. (laughs) Yeah. You can Google it. I'll, I'll try to, send you the link and then I'll have a lease find it and put it in the show notes. But it's, I look at cases like that and say, that doesn't make any sense. Um, there was another case that, um, Nick, um, um, for those in the audience that don't know, Nick is, is my co-host on this podcast and, and co-founder of Bonsai creative. Mm-hmm. There was a shooting in Antioch, Tennessee of a church by, uh, a, a black man who was young in in his mid twenties, I believe. And if you look at his Instagram posts and his social media posts, he he posts things about working out, positivity, optimism, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, blessings and faithfulness and all this stuff. And then, like literally the day before, he had all these uplifting posts, and then the next day, he shoots a church up just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And you haven't heard well, anything about I'll it you, since. I'll tell you what, Chris, the, the, the a black the, church at that. Since when is a black guy shoot a black church? Wow. 
I, I don't think yeah, I don't. Yeah, dog doesn't yeah, hunt to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I might have to go with you on that one. Um, perhaps the next video documentary we um, we screened one a few years back, or we wanted to screen one a few years back. It was about MK Ultra, and I learned more. I learned more about MK Ultra from that film, and it always has distribution problems. All of a sudden, the links don't work. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, man, it, it, it's crazy. But I got more, I learned more about MK Ultra from viewing that. From we, we were because actually there was a guy that we were. Um, he was up for a Pillar Award, and so we got to screen. And it, I mean, it's the guy who was long. It was like three hours, and I think that, that that actually was the problem for the for the summit was we couldn't screen it because the film didn't fit any block. Mm, yeah, it, yeah. it was just too long. But what um, was the name of it? I'll send the information back to you. Cool, cool. But, but essentially, essentially, it, 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 it was all about MK Ultra. And I, because see, I, I'm one of these people that have, I heard the words and I kind of thought I knew. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. <laughs> I, did, I, I did not know. <laughs> I did not know. Well, well, you're working on a documentary yourself called Whistle Blower, Whistle Dash Blower. Tell us all about this documentary. I'm excited to learn more, excited for this audience to learn more. Mm-hmm. What was your motivation for doing your own documentary and, and what is it uh, about? Well, essentially, Chris, this documentary documents my journey. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm the person that kind of, I blew the whistle, bad things happened. I, I just, one day I made the decision to, lead, to lean into it. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of covers where I came from, my upbringing, my whistleblower, personal whistleblower experience by reporting $40 million worth of waste, fraud, and abuse in the Clinton administration. Um, the, 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 the experience that I had fighting the federal government, the, um, the joy that I felt when I won the case, and then the heartbreak that I felt when they covered up the victory mm-hmm. and took that from me. And so it, it really tracks the um, a whistleblower's journey. And there, there, there's a there's a kind of the motif is um, there are five tests to whistle. There's, there's a paper that was written and presented in the uh, in the Australian whistleblower uh, conference a few years ago. But it it is the one thing that most accurately depicts the whistleblower's journey. And so that's kind of I'm using that. Um, it kind of is the blueprint to tell the story and it intermixes my story, but then we also get into the history of whistleblowing famous whistleblower. Well, and that's because part of, part of my journey, you know, I tell people that rock bottom was the firm foundation that I rebuilt my life. And I did that by my father gave me two things that helped me when I was suffering from suicidal depression. My father gave me a purpose driven life, Rick Warren's book. And I attended a whistleblower conference in Washington, D.C. And attending the conference gave me a sense of community. I'd found my tribe. And at that point, how I give back was to continue to move to have the to host the conference. And it has grown into the Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival. And so part of that, so you'll get where I came from. And I tell people, you know, is we talk about when you um when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. I got lemon drops, lemon zest, lemon lemon meringue pie, 
I got lemon pizzas. I got a lemon plantation. Okay. But that's what I'm, I'm going to do. I'm going to make this thing work. And so I, at some point in time, I just decided to lean into it and decided that this was going to be my life's work. And um, I think, what was it? Was it Martin Luther King that said, if you haven't found something that you're willing to die for, you have not yet lived or something, something along those lines. So I, I've kind of committed to it. And then I'm also educating other whistleblowers that as they try to navigate this journey themselves. And so that's a part of me giving back, me helping other people. And then I just felt like a long time ago, I felt the stuff that we were doing was important, even though I didn't necessarily always know how to, how to, how to get it out. So from taking, from just taking pictures when we were on the hill to moving up to video. So I kind of, I'm kind of the master of the arc of the whistleblower summit archives. Yeah. And so with that, and then also other stuff that I'm shooting is basically that forms the foundation for the um, feature length documentary. It's incredible. And I don't know if it was Martin Luther King Jr. or if it was Malcolm X, but I I think the quote was, if you can't find something to live for, you need to find something to die for. I think that was X, but yes. Martin Luther King has MLK has one too. Yeah, some some something something like, like, something like that. But you know, it's a good reminder I, I, to to live that purpose driven life, like the Mitch yep. album book talks about. And and I'm so thankful that your dad gave you that book because in that perspective, uh, because I, I think you're bringing something really important, you know, to light and into the world. You know, every day that you're go out and you create and you, and you do what you do. So kudos, kudos to your dad. Um, are there any films that you're really excited for the attendees of the whistleblower summit to see? Like, are there any films that are going to debut this year that, um, that we're still going doing the judging super and, pumped about? Yeah. Well, no, we're still going to doing the judging. So we're, we're still in process and I don't want to, um, there's one that I am excited about um, that's going to screen. It's um, Truth Teller. Um, but um, I'm, again, I, I'm, there, there's, there are more people than just me. So we're still going through all the judging and everything's still in progress. Got it. Got it. Keep us posted. So you man, said Truth Teller was one of them, though? Yeah, I think it's Truth Teller. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Perfect. But there was, um, I tell you, man, I'm, I'm probably more excited about you guys coming. Yeah. We're, <laughs> you know, no, we're pretty excited. I am, too. No, listen. The journey has to start. Yeah. And if you can't get the pitch right, it, it dies there. Yeah. It, it literally dies there. And so I think when what you just, when you were talking about pitching to filmmakers, there is a point where you're really, you, you're really discussing risk that as a financer, I'm listening to all the things that you say that are risky and mm-hmm. therefore they're scary. If I'm a journalist, um, there's some point where I have to convince you that there's a story and then I have to get out of my way. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to, and, that, that, and that's part of the problem that, that I have a lot of times trying to get whistleblowers to understand because the, the old, the old joke is that when you meet a whistleblower, they'll give you a suitcase full of documents. Yeah. Now, yeah. now it's a, now it's a flash drive. Yeah. But you know, the thing is, is what I want to do is I want to, I want to, uh, I want to get enough attention and interest spark enough interest so that the reporter wants to hear more. What they, now, of course, they're going to tell you, show me everything. Do not show them everything. <laughs> okay. Because at this point in time, what they need to do is they need enough information 
to validate what you just pitched, that this, this is actually, there is some evidentiary support. Yep. And so give them that. Then they're going to tell you again, you know, show us everything. Do not show them everything because anything beyond that point, they're looking for a reason to exclude you, to, 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 to kill the story. And a lot of times, if you just give them the sheer volume of, if you give them the suitcase full of documents, the sheer volume of documents prevents them from going, having to take the time to ferret out all your information to figure out what's relevant or not. So what's going to happen is the mind that's confused always says no. And that's, that's, I gotta, I gotta get my people to not push people to that point. And so it's a great quote. Um, it's very similar to investing advice that I got really young was if you don't know what the market's going to do, do nothing. Mm-hmm. If you don't know if you, if the films, you know, marketable or has elements that you can believe in or not, then the, the, the best move is to, is to do nothing and just kind of wait and see because, you know, if, if a filmmaker is really going to make it, like the movie, they're going to make it with or without you. And it's good to kind of do nothing. Sometimes you sit back and you get to see what that filmmaker's next move is. Like, are you going to like, keep going or like, did this like, no, for now, shut the whole thing down. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, if, if I expound on that sentence I gave earlier, it would simply just be that, okay, well, the second thing I'm looking for is, who is and, and what is, are the behavior and, and traits of the founder filmmaker? And Nick and I, we call it founder filmmaker because every film is an LLC and you're really betting on, can that founder filmmaker execute the things they say they want to execute? Wow. And the same way you would invest in a startup, oh, frankly, yeah. I, I mean, mean it's, it's like, it's the same thing. It's oh. like, do you, you can, you can understand. It's like, if you look at, the thing that's going on in, in media now and, and across sort of television is, is the uh, tech stories, the, the tech series that have come out this. So first mm-hmm. it was the Uber one with Travis Kalanick it's about Travis Kalanick, super pumped. Mm-hmm. Then it was, we crashed uh, the, we work story about Adam and, and Rebecca Newman. And, and then this, uh, then there was the Hulu one uh, based on the podcast series called the dropout about um, Theranos and, um, and and Elizabeth Holmes. Almost lost her name there. Elizabeth Holmes. And so when you look at each one of these cases, now I know um, I have friends that were pitched by and had interactions with both Elizabeth Holmes and Adam Newman. And so I have some insight, uh, some firsthand insight, or at least secondhand insight into how they operate. And in each case the bet is on the founder the, and, and the investment is, Oh my God, they're really going to do this. And if I don't invest in it and they don't let me invest in it, right. Cause they have all the leverage. They might not let you invest. If they don't let me invest in it, her product or, or his product is going to ruin my margin and my business is going to be over. Hmm. So the fear comes from the idea that the idea that, or the concept that the idea they have is so disruptive that their business is in jeopardy. A lot of time, the investor of the disruptive technology or product is the competitor Mm -hmm. hedging a bet Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> you yeah. know, against the idea that this person might actually succeed. And, and so the same thing crazy. is kind of, right. if that gives you an insight on how to pitch your film and, mm-hmm. it, and it should, that's kind of what you're looking at. It's like, like make it where as an investor or as a producer, even I can't afford not to be involved in your film. That's an interesting way to look at it in, in my, in my personal opinion. Yeah, that's, that's different, Chris. Yeah. That's different. Yeah. Okay. Um, what would you say the current laws or, or actually would you say the current laws we have are, are adequate? The laws that protect whistleblowers. Do you, do you think those are adequate? No, they're not. Um, it's it's kind of an oxymoron to say that the whistleblower protection laws, there may be whistleblower redress, but there's really no, there's no real protection. Um, mm. I mean, you literally have whistleblowers and journalists being prosecuted under the Espionage Act. I mean, how, you know, well, once crazy. upon a time, you just lose your job. Now you can go to jail, you know, if not worse. So it's, I mean that, that's kind of the landscape, and and I, and I don't I don't mean to sound negative, but it's their common illusions that I have to try to help the people in my tribe understand. <laughs> <laughs> and, to, and to me, it's one of those things where, at the end of the day, any protection that you think that you may have by anonymity and anonymity, you're it's probably you have more protection by being public. Yeah. Think about this. At the end of the day, Daniel Ellsberg went on to become the greatest anti-war activist. You know, he wasn't just staying in the shadows by the by the um, photocopy machine. Again, yeah. he he leaned into it. And so, but there's there, you know, and it's a little bit different when you're dealing with national security. There's there's some extra things you have to be careful about. But generally speaking, um, you 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 you're gonna walk into almost another a different existence because seriously, Chris, what what happens is when you blow the whistle, kind of your life, your career has changed, mm-hmm. and a lot of times you don't know it yet. See, there's a lot of times when there's a whistleblower. You know, if you're you're medical, you're 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 a doctor, you blow the whistle, you report something in the hospital. You know, are you a doctor if you don't have hospital privileges? Hmm. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so that's one of the things that we're, we're You're certainly not a practicing one. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, guys, you, you, you may or may not realize because you're like, well, I still got to pay Sally May and I still have all this education. I still have this degree, but as a practical matter, you know, you're not, you're not the doctor you once were. You're not the, no. you know, you're not the professional you once were. However, there is another door. You now may be that, that, that author. You now may be that filmmaker. You know, maybe that podcast producer, that reporter, that journalist, that blah, 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 whatever else it is. And I tell people that you just have to embrace the power of your story and win, lose, or draw because, unfortunately, statistically speaking, most whistleblowers lose their case, not because they don't have good cases, but the impediments in the system make it very, very difficult to win. You're almost drawn to an inside straight. But every whistleblower I know has an incredible story. And it's kind of like, what do you do with that story? How do you use it? How do you, can you monetize it? Can you, you know, use it for, for other good? Can you um, use that to kind of change your, um, for a new career? 
And yeah, that's stuff that we talk about at the, at the summit. Yeah, I, I agree with you about it's better to be public than anonymous. You're safer. I mean, you look at mm. Chelsea Manning and you look at Snowden and how active they are on Twitter. Mm-hmm. You know, Twitter's making it where, um, you know, it would be very difficult and it would be, it would be too obtuse to, to have something happen to them. Mm-hmm. If you're any state or, or government, they like it better the Julian Assange way. And I don't know if you, how you feel about Assange. I'd love to hear your thoughts, but I, I saw that he was extradited and, um, after being tortured <laughs> basically in a, in a secret prison in the United Kingdom, and it looks like he's going to end up back here in the United States and they're probably going to, you know, torture him there. Maybe I, I, just, I don't see, um, a, I don't see a, I don't see a good path forward for Julian Assange. Yeah. Um, my take on Julian Assange is, and people, you know, you tell you what, Chris, when they, um, the movie, the fifth estate came out, participant media did it. Yeah. They actually, they didn't screen the whole movie. They screened segments from it at the whistleblower summit. I forget which year we were at the national press club. And some of the feedback from the whistleblowers was this, they were marketing the fifth estate as a whistleblower movie starring Julian Assange. Hmm. But, but Julian Assange is not the whistleblower. Julian yeah. Assange it's is a journalist, a right? Well, you could, well, I would say he's a hack. He's a hacktivist. Yeah. All right. He's a publisher. The whistleblower was, 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 um, was Bradley Manning. Was, was Chelsea, now Chelsea Manning is the whistleblower. Yeah. And Chris, man, you could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> the people that participant heard that they were marking a whistleblower movie for this and not a whistleblower. Yeah. And it was, so that's kind of my, again, my take with, with the signs is we don't, I mean, kind of how we define whistleblowing. It's a person who, it's a person who sees something wrong and tries to fix it. Somebody who has legitimate access to information and they may now discover that it's being used, used poorly or used for, um, um, for infamous reasons. Yeah. Okay. We can accept that as a whistleblower. If I break into your house to steal your laptop, I'm a thief, not a whistleblower. Yeah. And so part of where we draw the kind of draw the line is some of the stuff that, that Assange was doing. Um, well, they're, they're, it's mixed in the community. Me personally, I, I view that as a little lesser than I do. Um, and even Julian, even Edward Snowden, there's some questions about some of the stuff that he ultimately did, but um, yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause with Assange, you're right. He's, he's the publisher. He's, he's basically saying, I won't give you up as a source, um, but I, I'm not going to question how you got this stuff either, mm-hmm. and then and then and then publish it. And the problem, well, also, he, he's total truth. He's no secrets. Yeah. And as you got to understand that at some point in time in government, there there are something. Now again, you always have the problem with governments are always going to want to overclassify things. So that's a, that's kind of a different issue. But I'm not really sure if we can live in a world where there are no state secrets. Right. I was having that conversation recently about the fact that there are infoists out there that think that nothing should be secret. And, and there's a lot of just people living their life every day, frustrated that they can't know every single thing about every single thing. And I'm like, you don't want to live in a world where, where right. there are no secrets. 
Right. Like some secrets are worthy right. of being held and, right. and taken to the grave, both at the government level and at the interpersonal level. That and, too. I, and I think these last two generations don't fully understand that. And it's a big part well, of why never, our society they, they never, has gotten a little, they never um, with privacy, uh, per, uh, persecutory and, and everything's uh feels like it's a uh, referendum now. Chris, they, they're, they're, there's not a generation, at least one, maybe two that never grew up with privacy. Yeah. And like, they don't understand the concept. You know, you know it's, man, this turn on turn on location tracking. No, no <laughs> I'm not yeah. turning on location tracking. It's bad enough as it is. Yeah, because a lot of times the tech companies will uh, ask for forgiveness, not permission. Right, and we only hear about the fact that these things happen after they get after the fact. Right after the fact, and then after all the money sort of changed hands, and they figured out how to do the PR. And it's mm-hmm. like sometimes months go by, and and everyone. You know, within the organizations, the tech organizations knew that this breach happened or this thing happened. And then the public finds out, Mm -hmm. you know, well, well, after the fact I am curious about, you mentioned something about your definition of a whistleblower. Do you or the whistleblower community give any credibility to those who reveal previously unknown facts or or write a tell all book kind of like John, John Bolton's latest book? Um, mm-hmm. but they do it after leaving the office or, or after personal retaliation is no longer a factor. Now we the thing about the people that we respect are people that tell the truth when they have something, something to lose. Okay. So that person who blows a whistle, who gets fired from their job and yep. then blows the whistle after they're terminated that we don't count that or that person who really, mm, if you're a part of the crime, okay yeah if if, if you're part of the crime we really really have problems with with what you're saying i mean even though to get to the worst organizations there are no innocent people there Mm -hmm. are no angels in the mob so if somebody's kind of blowing a whistle on the mob it's okay we do understand you have to be a bad guy but if you're doing it after you've been caught and you're turning state's evidence to avoid further prosecution if you're Sammy the Bull, we don't consider you a whistleblower. Right. You're kind of like all of Trump's people now, where exactly. you were a minion right. when it was paying, it was lucrative. But now that you're, right. y- your boss is seen less favorable, it's a good time to you know, exactly. turn him over. It's, it's, not, um, you know, it's not exactly the most not, honorable. That's, right, that's, that's not what we're doing. And, and, and see, part of that is it's because we're trying to retake the moniker. Yeah. That the, the whistleblower shouldn't be a pejorative. Yeah. And that's kind of how, how what we have to do to kind of try to to try to achieve that. Yeah, I agree because I think whistleblowing gets hurt by perception when you have a bunch of cronies become sort of feels like trusted names and sources for truth and information after the fact, like after they were called or after they avoided jail time. And cause I look at like Scaramucci and I, and, and I look at like uh, the other dude that, that the lawyer that bailed on Trump and all these, like now they get on TV, they get interviews all the time. Right. We're expected to believe every word that comes out of their mouth because now they're the good guys and they're working for the quote unquote right. good team. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, 
You, right. You're talking about somebody who has no compass. Right. Absolutely. And, and that, yeah, so that, that's They're kind not of whistleblowers. The, yeah, no, and that's the yardstick that we use. Yeah, I love it. Um, do you think there's any been, uh, do you think there's any progress or reforms that have been made in the past year or two as a result of some of these revelatory documentary films? Hmm. I'm not on the tech side. I, I still don't see it. I'm, 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 to me, man, we, we have to get back to antitrust enforcement yeah. and nobody's talking about it. Um, you know, section, what, what's the section um, with the immunity? Is it 205 or whatever that the, the, the thing that allows you to say anything or pub or post anything mm-hmm. um, and doesn't hold you to the same standard as a publisher. Mm-hmm. Something's got to happen there. And I, and I don't see any movement, uh, any real movement on, on the Hill towards it. I see them talking about it and saying it's bad, but I don't see anything really organized. Are there um, any lobbies? I'm for it. Uh, well, you know, you still have progressive people. Oh, you mean lobbies for maintaining and keeping those protections in place? Right. I mean, all, all the tech companies. I mean, they can, you know, they're, they're, they're spending $1,500 million on both sides of the aisle to keep their, their favorite stuff. So, yeah, there, yeah, there are lobbies. <laughs> yeah. Um, to me, one of the most interesting things that I'm looking at now is Elon Musk buying Twitter. Yeah. And I don't think, I, I, well, I've yet to hear someone really articulate how bad that is. Um, at least in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the way I see it is most people don't really understand that as African-Americans, we over index on Twitter. Mm. That's why black Twitter and, and Twitter, there's a concentration of, of journalists, reporters, and media people. That's why when you tweet something, I was starting to see stuff on my Twitter feed before it's on the news, before yes. it's on cable. Yep. That that is why that's why Trump loves it. I can tweet something and I can change what's on TV. Yep. So when you have a platform that over index, it's the only thing that we've had where black people actually have more say on Twitter. And to me, that's why I believe that's why I was targeted. Hmm. Is that Elon Musk wants Elon wants Elon Musk wants Twitter because he wants black Twitter. And I've yet, I haven't seen anybody really kind of approach it from that perspective. And I so, haven't either. That's, that's very interesting. You, you know, I've heard a lot of arguments. Uh, I'm a, people talk to me about it cause I'm a Tesla owner and I was early on Tesla as, as an investor as well. And I'm a, been following Elon since I was in college and he was doing PayPal before mm-hmm. he sold that to eBay along with the rest of the PayPal mafia. And I guess people could describe me as an Elon apologist. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I, I don't think that I am, but I also fight with kindness and patience as best as I can. And so mm-hmm. I'm not a guy who's going to have incendiary things to say about anyone. And I just try to look at it objectively. Uh, I'm a classic fence sitter. I think that's kind of why I'm a bit of a libertarian, <laughs> but it's, mm-hmm. but, it, but, but I've heard a lot of arguments on both sides. I haven't heard that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the bottom line is, is what the purchase does is it forces you 
to have to put a lot of faith and trust in one person or a small group of people. Um, based on his track record, I think that's a good, I think he's fine. Um, better than Prague in, in the, in that, in that board that's doing nothing um, that pushed out Jack Dorsey, but could it go sideways? <laughs> yeah, it mm-hmm. certainly can, especially if the, if the whole platform, this whole town hall for black Twitter, for example, mm-hmm. is reliant on the, the definitions that, that one sort of man sets. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's, well, um, I think you're going to want, you, you're going to have the, I mean, wow. To a certain extent, he's almost like um, Julian Assange. Or, or at least what I interpret him saying about free speech, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of the other speech that I don't want the speech to be that free. Um, that, that there are no there are no rails, so you can take that free speech model to go back to the, you know, the beheadings and whatever. You know, what I'm saying you, there, there's there there needs to be some moderation. He'll have to figure uh, out if the, I think the moderation is going to be around what's protected and non-protected speech, according to the constitution. I think that's at no, least no, that's no, a no, really no. good place to start. I'm saying that that only applies to government actors. The, 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 the first, the first amendment protects a publisher's right to publish. It's not the people's right to know it's a mm-hmm. publisher's right to publish. Yeah. And so the reason that everybody was saying that you could kick Donald Trump off of Twitter and it wasn't a First Amendment issue. It's because Twitter is not a government entity. It's not the government censoring him. It's a, a private corporation. Yeah. Once somebody else controls a private corporation, now the shoe's on the other foot. So it's it's not it's not whatever the constitutional protected because there's no government actor involved. Oh no, I, I don't mean it from a legal sense. I mean from a policy setting standpoint. Mm-hmm. I think that's how I should do it. I think he should, if he really wanted to be a town hall for free speech in the, in the world's town hall, I think mm-hmm. you have to approach it from what's protected speech, what's not protected speech. And let's just start there and see mm-hmm. if you can make it, see if you can make it better than it was. before. I, 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 haven't, I haven't heard him. I, I, nothing that I've heard him say about that free speech seems to indicate that, that, that point of view. I think, I, mean, yeah, I, think I, I don't think, know if he'll, I I don't know if he'll do it, but I think he should yeah. Yeah, do okay. it that, do it that yeah. way. You're, you're in um, my theory on it. I haven't heard many people talk about either. So your theory was very, very novel. My theory is that none of his companies have PR and marketing departments. And he has been so successful on Twitter he has over 89 million followers. So he has like the following of like the biggest pop stars and, and mm-hmm. government officials in the world. Well, is that not because of your car? Yeah. Right. It is. But, but here's the thing. He has all these companies, right? Like, I don't know. I don't realize that, I don't know if people realize how many companies he owns, including open AI and boring company and, Neuralink and some of these Starlink and some of these more obscure companies that some people don't even know exist. Now he owns the marketing distribution channel. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. That's why I think he did. I think it's like, I don't have a marketing department. I don't have a PR department. I am a PR department of one. 
If I own this, then I own one of the most powerful marketing and idea sharing platforms on the planet. Uh, and the other ones aren't for sale. So it wasn't like, it's not like he can go out and get Facebook or IG or whatever, or TikTok. Mm. So now he controls what not only the, his the distribution aren't. stream for marketing and PR, but everyone else's. Why do you say the other ones weren't for sale? I mean, it's, um, it's all, it's all stock. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess controlling yeah. interests of, of Facebook isn't. Right. right. But also just look what it's trading at. Like even Facebook in a slump is four X, five X, the cost of Twitter of Twitter. Yeah. And yeah. And then they would be really crafty. That would be, that would be, that would be such a, to secure the money, to, to prove, because that was actually the holdup with Twitter. People thought it was like the, you know, Twitter freaking out. And maybe it was to a degree, but a big part of it was just simply, can you show us that you actually have this money? And so then when he showed that the funding was, was secured, then the whole thing went through because they're fiduciaries and they have to, they have to push it through. Um, this I was is opening the, po- the poison pill would work. Yeah, the poison pills. Uh, the poison pills. Uh, an, an interesting, interesting, interesting play. But the poison pill is really bad for shareholders, and so again, you end up putting yourself at risk because everybody that likes Elon or liked the deal would have turned around and sued. And they, you know, it just wasn't. It it was a really well played chess by by Elon, where. He put this poll out on Twitter. Should he buy Twitter? Is it worth it? Uh, do you think this is that free speech is important? Do you think that this is the town hall or whatever? And only until the very end do people think he was serious because here's a guy who posts 69 and 420 jokes all day and memes. Mm-hmm. So I think I think people learned a lesson that Elon's pretty savvy. He's he 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 didn't he doesn't run this because he's dumb. Like he, he can be kitty and jokey, but he's, he's a killer in, in business and he, he hasn't taken a lot of business L's, um, for, for sure. This is, this has been a blast. I, I, I just have a few more questions for you, by the way, and, and then I'll, I'll let you run. Okay. Um, it's always good. I, every time I get on, get on a call with you, I learn, I leave smarter than I came. I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, the, the one thing I wanted to ask you the last time we talked, Mike, that I didn't get to ask, and I was like, ugh, is what place, state, country, you name it, in your opinion, is the best refuge for a whistleblower that kind of needs to lay low? Hmm. Mm. Well, here's the thing. It, it's part of the whistleblowing is a global phenomenon. But you really kind of need the First Amendment because blowing the whistle here versus blowing the whistle in Saudi Arabia in a totalitarian um, government, very, very different outcomes. Yeah. So I actually I hadn't really thought about that because I hadn't been ready to flee yet. But perhaps I should think about it. Some non-extradition. (laughs) <laughs> treaty some someplace yeah. with a favorable exchange rate and a beach <laughs> uh, Puerto Rico maybe yeah well you know well that's us yeah but um so I don't know I um hmm. it's like it is us and then it isn't us I think something just right. passed where Puerto Ricans can't 
uh, you know, something around the, I can't remember what the law is, but I remember Puerto Ricans were disappointed. I tell you, man, I went to, I, um, during work back when I had a job, um, I was working with the one I was working with the um, Clinton administration. Um, we had a there was a conference in Puerto Rico and Old San Juan, man. It's the most beautiful place. I love San Juan, yeah. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Um, that, that that was one of one of my to do lists when I mean I, I literally felt Tons like of I history found history too. Yep, I felt like I literally found God's neighborhood, man. <laughs> was, <laughs> was, I'm sure he's a couple houses there. What a way! To, what a way to put it. And yeah. I think Peter Schiff lives there too. Like he's over there hoarding his tax benefits in gold uh, in Puerto Rico. But I could see myself, you know, going to an internet cafe and hanging out all day in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. That, that, then, man, you know, the guy that the I was, the guy I was visiting with was the I forget his name, but he was the president of Banco Popular, and he, we went to his condo. And his backyard was the fairway on a PGA golf course at the <laughs> Western Resort. They actually had two golf courses, man. I was like, wow. <laughs> one day. One day. One, one day. What's your, one what's your day. handicap, Michael? Uh, quadriplegic. <laughs> <laughs> Ditto. But Ditto. Yeah, I, but, hey, I, I love all the I love the, the styles. I love the I love the gear. Mm-hmm. I love the 19th hole. I love the fresh air. I love everything up to actually hitting the dog on ball. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm I'm with you on that for sure. Once I get warmed up, I'm I'm decent. But in the beginning, it's gonna well, be ugly. Well no, Chris, for me, once it's over. <laughs> Then I can hit the ball. <laughs> Once it's totally out of range, yeah. all of a sudden I can find my. I guess I, I just relax. Yeah, and then, I can, then, I, then I can find my sway. Yeah, because golf is the biggest head trip of all time for any any sport. Mm-hmm. Um, what what are the two best pieces of advice you've received in your life, and who did they come from? Mm-hmm. Your career. Well, let me. Uh, I was kind of looking over some of those notes. And let me say this, man. When I um, I would like to give some advice to future filmmakers, please. And let, let me just, let me say this because, mind you, when I was um coming up, I wound up. I have a degree in producing film, video, and television. All right, not not a film degree, not an MA, but a a degree in producing. Mm-hmm. And so the whole, the business aspect is kind of what I look, what I look at. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, when I got my, then I, I did it, I went to the, um, um, American universities, um, school of communication. So I got it. My thesis was actually, I was, I was in the, in the federal government and dealing with the empowerment zones, that federal, um, community development package that we talked about before. Yep. And what my thesis project was, Chris, I decided that I was looking at the programs for real estate and developing. Then there was a lot of inner cities, essentially empowerment zone programs all across the country. What I wanted to do was to build a studio in one of these preferred areas and then use it, have the production, have have it to produce essentially black movies because Mm -hmm. of the profitability you know, you don't have to have blockbusters and when you can turn it, take 5 million and turn it into 60. And so I, that was the business model. I had gone so far as even I found a, um, an award-winning architect. 
Mm. Um, so essentially I was, I had thought of what has now become Tyler Perry studio studios mm. in 96, 97. That was, that was kind of my thing. Not to say that Tyler Perry stole my idea, but I just, that's where I was. And that's how I was kind of viewing the business. Right. Um, long story short, I got, that's where, where my life kind of slid down the whole, um, the whistle for Lord path. And it threw me kind of off that, that game at that particular time. But from that experience and from that knowledge, I, um, I'll tell people, filmmakers in particular, to be intentional. Mm-hmm. It's know why you, there's a lot of stuff that you can do. Just know why you're doing it. Like if you, cause I have people now to tell me they want me to go, um, you know, take all the, the archival footage from the summit and put it on, on YouTube. Okay, my question would be, why am I building another platform? Why would I do that? Mm-hmm. There, there, there could be an answer. It might be that I want to build the audience and become like Issa Rae. But it's not just, just go do something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's not like, like I, I get my film. Because a lot of times, and, and again, when I, with, with where I am in the process of this documentary, I kind of got, I literally had gotten stuck. Mm-hmm. I'd gone all the way to applying to um, Sundance and applying for ITVS and all the little normal stuff. And everybody tells me, no, keeps telling me, no, tells me no again, but I'm not a quitter, but I I literally gotten stuck and kind of how I got unstuck was I found a community of filmmakers and that was the Northeast film lab, which they're also going to be with the summit this year. So that, and that that's really helped me a lot to help me kind of move, move the progress forward. But it, it's it's the intentionality. It's a lot of times the filmmakers or the artists, but they need to have a producer's hat. You know, it's like, hey, I got this film and I can get it on Netflix. Well, all right, Netflix may take your film, but you didn't break even. You're losing money. Yeah. Why would you do that? Just to say that you're on Netflix. Um, you know, and I, I think that people aren't really analyzing it, and they're not they're not necessarily intentional intentional about the business. Yeah. And that would be, that, that's my recommendation. Yeah. I that's, love that. That's my, that's my one piece of advice. Got it. Love it. It's a, it's one piece instead of two, but it's one big one. That's really important. Um, what do you think are the three best resources for whistleblowers online outside Ooh. of the whistleblower film, uh, whistleblower uh, summit? Well, it, the whole point is that it, it's Okay. The summit itself is a community and it's it kind of, it, it's the same philosophy. I just, I just told you about the filmmakers community yeah. that being finding a community, being in a tribe actually helps you, those relationships. Absolutely. So that's what, so the summit is one. I would say the next is there's an office of the whistleblower unbudsman, which there mm-hmm. is actually an office on camp on Capitol Hill now in the house Got it. that they don't necessarily take whistleblower complaints, but they can help coordinate whistleblowers and then also there there are a few there's now a house and senate whistleblower protection caucus so that that's a that's a really great resource there awesome do you um, know do you know if you can reach that online or is that something no it's online okay yeah, got you, it. you can reach them online i uh, i i can't remember the url but i'll find it and i'll shoot it to you so you can add it to the transcript perfect and we'll yeah we'll get um we'll get at least added to the show notes all yeah. right uh, can you think of any any others that are great resources? Um, uh, that, well, the Make It Safe um, Coalition 
And that's essentially the coalition of advocates that, that support whistleblower. So one is the Government Accountability Project, GAP. They're well known. Another is the National Whistleblower Center. Mm-hmm. They're very well known. Um, Tom Devine, legal director of GAP, has a book called The Corporate Whistleblower Survival Guide. Yeah. Great book. And um, Stephen Coyne, uh, he used to be the director, executive director of National Whistleblower Center, but he has a book called the um, the Whistleblower's Handbook. So yeah. those, those those are two really tremendous resources for whistleblowers. Absolutely, we'll have all those links for people to click on in the show notes mm-hmm. um, regarding those really important and critical books. And speaking of important and critical, uh, that's the Whistleblower Film Summit, Filmmaker Summit. It's coming up July 22nd through the 31st. Michael, can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media, on the internet, where they can see some of your work, buy your book, um, and get more information about the summit? Uh, For the summit, go to www.whistleblowersummit.com, whistleblowersingularsummit.com. And actually, you, you can find links to my book there. There's We have a, a section for whistleblower books. Um, so actually, you can find, you can pick up the um, Whistleblower Survival Guide and the um, Whistleblower's Handbook there as well. My, my book, of course, is Race, Power, and Politics, Memoirs of an Acorn Whistleblower. Uh, you can get that at the website, Amazon. You can also get it uh, everywhere books are sold. Um, my personal, is there an audio book version of that, Michael? There is not an audio book version of that, but okay, I may need to hire you to do that for me. I'm down. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, my personal website is Michael McRae, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, um, M-C-C-R-A-Y, um, dot net. And so that's uh, doing some more work on it. I'm, I'm trying to kind of develop my speaking page. So there. There's some, there's, there's some soon to be updated. And, um, of course, if you want to know more about the acorn eight and that journey that allowed us to create the whistleblower summit, you can go to, uh, www.acorn8.com. Again, that's acorn eight, the number eight.com. Um, on, on social, uh, I guess on Twitter, the few followers that I have, it's at McCray author. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. I have kind of a better following there and I forget my LinkedIn handle, but I'll, I'll send all of that to you, um, Chris. So you can at least have that in the notes. Yeah. And I'm sure you can search Michael McRae and they'll, they'll be able to match up the one that's you based on your background and what you're, yeah. what you're all about for sure. And you can also find the uh, whistleblower summit on Instagram as well. Mm-hmm. They have a little page there. So make sure to follow them and, and we can leave it on this. Um, do whistleblowers face any new threats following the January 6th events from, from 2021? I don't really think the threat changed after, I think the biggest threat was actually under the Obama administration when we saw the prosecutions under the espionage act increase. I know mm-hmm. A lot of people that don't want to hear that, but um, that that that's really when the landscape changed. I think um, under the last administration, 
they're just there were just so many lies. I mean, when you when 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 our our commodity is the truth, they're just. I mean, we were just inundated with lies, yeah. and it seemed kind of paralyzing for a lot of our community. I'm like there were a lot of people, even with the. Um, I mean, we, we fought long and hard to get um, House and Senate whistleblower protection caucuses, and they were like MIA. So that was, um, and I think they were just they were just overwhelmed by the last administration. Um, so we're hoping, just like with bringing the um, the White House Correspondents Dinner back, we're hoping to bring some sanity back with this year's summit and um, getting things going back on the right right track. So I, I don't think there's anything in particular that's happened since January 6th that's significantly different than what's been going on the last couple of years. Got it. Well, man, this has been incredible as I knew it would. Keep fighting the good fight. I know we're going to be in touch very, very soon. And for those listening, do take heed. Go follow Michael McRae everywhere you can find uh, him. Uh, the books are powerful uh, that he recommended. Also, make sure to go out and get his book. You can also find uh, transcripts and show notes of this conversation at www.banzai.film or on the podcast player of your choice, whatever you're listening to this on. So, Mike, until next time, and uh, stay safe. And uh, I can't wait to, to be part of the summit and see you in person. All right. Appreciate it, Chris. Take care. Anytime. Be good. All right. Peace. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click Contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film and you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.